Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the marvel and the wonder of the incarnation. And as we turn once again this morning, this Sunday morning before Christmas, would you speak to us through your word, challenge us, encourage us, and strengthen us in our understanding of who Jesus is and how to live for him. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin our message time this morning, I want to take a survey. Um, how many of you were born in a hospital? Raise your hands. You were born in a hospital. That's what I thought, almost everyone. All right. How many of you were born in a house? How many of you were born in a house? Okay. There's still a few, usually some of the older graying group, like my father. Okay. A few in the house. How many were born in a barn? Anybody born in a barn? We just don't hear of it, do we? Anybody born in any other unusual circumstance that you wanted to give a shout out for right now? <laughs> I said that in the early service and Gracie Troxel sitting in the back raised her hand and she said, I said, where were you born? Grace, she said, I was born on the side of I-40 outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> I didn't ask her if a state trooper brought her into the world or not, but uh, she's here and in good health and... Boy, we have these stories, don't we? And when we turn to Luke chapter 2, Luke's gospel in chapter 2, we have a baby born in a barn. And I wanted us to, uh, to be reminded of this this morning as we lay a foundation for our message. Our message this morning has three parts. At first, you might think they're a little bit disconnected, but we're laying a foundation as we remind ourselves of the manger. After the manger, we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we want to look at a message that the Apostle Paul gave to the Philippian church, and out of that message, Paul will illustrate then with the point of our message this morning with the model that we have in our Lord Jesus, largely centered on this reality of his incarnation. We've been trying to look at Christmas and unwrap Christmas uh, and look at it a little bit more deeply, uh, maybe a little bit more theologically or doctrinally this Christmas. So we have looked at the deity of Christ and the significance of the virgin birth in relation to the deity of Christ. And then last week we looked at the humanity of Christ and why did God have to put on flesh? What, why did that really matter? And did it really matter? And indeed it did and does. And this week... We want to look at the humiliation of Christ, and as we move through our message, you'll understand um, more clearly what we're trying to communicate. For now, let's look at the manger. It's Luke chapter 2. We'll not read the whole account. You know here that we are reminded that there was a reason that God in his sovereign oversight um, directed along with the decision-making of politicians that wanted to, to take a census so that they could update their tax records and bring in more money to the government coffers, that our Lord, fully aware, our Heavenly Father, fully aware of the decision-making of men, is able to use those to his own end. And so, as Galatians 4.4 4 says, at just the right time, part of that just the right time was that a man named Joseph needed to take his betrothed Mary down back to Bethlehem, the city of David. Let's read the first part of the story. Um, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, Luke 2, 1, 
that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, fulfilling prophecy in God's timetable here, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We're so familiar with this story, but let's just think through what the unfolding of their travels must have brought to them. Uh, We know culturally and we know uh, historically on the timeline that this would have been a society where uh, it was very difficult to make reservations ahead of time. This was um, a time when you would come into a community if you were traveling and and societally, it was acceptable to find lodging there in the community on short notice. There were inns. It's interesting, isn't it, how Luke, Matthew has a, a little part of the Christmas story. Luke, the historian, the researcher, he didn't give us very many details, and yet he gives us just enough that we understand precisely what happened. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have just the right amount of the story here in our Bibles for us. We don't know on what day they arrived in Bethlehem. It's, we don't know if they arrived in the middle of the night like we sometimes picture. And we sometimes, I think, think that she must have had the baby as soon as they arrived You know, Joseph was fully aware that Mary was pregnant. You do know that, don't you? He was fully aware that it was a terrible time to travel. He was fully aware that he did not have reservations. Being his hometown, being the place of his upbringing in his father's hometown, I would imagine that when Joseph planned the trip and they knew they had to go, uh, we, it is implied that while they were there, it says. It, so they were there several days or maybe weeks. He must have thought there would be an uncle or a cousin or a third cousin at least who would be able to lodge them. We don't know what he thought or how hard he worked at it, but it is clear from the story that when they arrived, they ended up lodging in a barn in a stable. We don't know what that looked like. Some portray it as a dugout cave or part of a cavern at some level, a a shelter, a wooden structure, stone structure, stone and wood roof with straw on top. We don't know. We know that it was a place where animals were kept. It was a stable, so therefore animals were kept in there in the night. They were fed there. They were grained there. Therefore, there was manure there. That's what animals do when they eat. So there would have been bedding, there would have been straw for the animals. We can only imagine that it must not have been a place fit for a birth. They evidently had lodged there more than one night. It it appears that as they arrived, there was no room in the inn for them, and, and they were there evidently while they were there. It gives you the idea that some time passed by, They must have arrived, the city was crowded, the inn was unavailable, the innkeeper, 
always looking for a deal, offered the stable out back, but at half price. The Bible doesn't say that. You can only imagine that the innkeeper was trying to just earn another dollar. Got a little barn out back. And what did Joseph think? What did they think when they walked in? And I wonder if he looked around and maybe it was dark. I don't know if it was dark at night. Maybe it was dark in the barn. And you're looking around and you're thinking to yourself, I've got to find a place that would keep us dry if it rains during the night. And we've got to be comfortable. And my wife is pregnant. And maybe moving some things around and spreading some straw in a back stall of some kind where there was a little bit of privacy and a place of shelter. And then maybe Joseph turned to Mary and said, "Um, what do you think? Is this okay if we just stay here? And humble Mary, let her husband take care of her. There they are. We don't know the details, but there they are. And she is ready to have the baby, and it's time to have the baby, and she does. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Joseph must have ran for midwife help. We don't know the details. We take it to be an absolutely, completely normal birth, and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger in a barn. So here's the point. A baby being born in a barn seems out of place, but how much more is it out of place for the king of glory to be born in a barn? So let's just stop and get this in perspective here. This is the second member of the Godhead. This is God, the member of the Trinity, who put on flesh. This is God who knew nothing from eternity past. He knew all things in his omniscience, but from eternity past and in eternity future, he would know the glories of heaven. He knew the choirs of heaven. He knew what it was to sit at the right hand of the Father. You know, in heaven, they use gold for blacktop. That's the kind of place it is. This is what he knew. This is, this is the glory of heaven, and there's the second member of the Godhead on his throne at the right hand of the Father. You see, you can, you can take the timeline and the ministry of our Lord Jesus, and you can divide it into two broad categories. Let's use our pulpit as a divider here, and on the one side, you can divide all of the actions and ministry of the Lord Jesus into the category of his humiliation. Here he is, part of the Godhead, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one Colossians says that spoke all things into existence, not only were they made by him, but it says they were made for him. Everything that was made was made for him. I saw a picture of a new galaxy this week that has been discovered. It is absolutely stunning, and then to get your mind wrapped around how big it is, but in the technology, they have a new... They took some pictures farther into outer space than we've ever seen before. We really don't know very much about it, but all of that was spoken into existence by the second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, all things were made by him and all things were made for him. And I looked at that galaxy and I thought that was made for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we don't know the whole sequence. We talked last week about God coming up with a new thought, that God came up with a plan. We know that from ages past, it was the established decree of God that it would happen. But the second member of the Godhead leaves his throne. Oh, Pax and Ariel, the little angels were upset by that. There was silence in heaven and tears in heaven, maybe, so to speak. And what does he do? So this is the humiliation of Christ. The second member of the Godhead, the one who knows what it is in all of the glory of God, in all of the multi-eyed beings and creatures thronging around his throne and around the throne of the heavenly father and the multi-winged angels and all of the majestic choirs and all of the glory of heaven that is outside of anything we've known or seen. That's what he knows. And then he got up and came and gestated in the womb of a young girl. But it doesn't stop there. He then passed through the birth canals crying and was born in a barn, do you see the humiliation here? And the God Almighty who spoke the worlds into existence is now being laid in a manger he put on flesh, but it doesn't stop there. He grows in his three-year window of ministry from age 30 to 33, ministers, ministers, but At the end of that time, what does he know? He knows those who were closest to him, who loved him and he loved them, who would turn and look at him and say, I never knew that man. And the humiliation goes down and he's rejected, not only by wicked people, but by people who were closest to him. And he's humiliated and all that and he goes down and he's grabbed and he's bound and he's beaten with rods and he has a crown of thorns jammed on his head and the humiliation goes down, down, down and then he's put on a cross and the Romans preserved crucifixion, execution on the cross for only the despicable ilk of the earth and the humiliation goes down. This is the one, this is the one that the angels sang to This is the one who is present before creation. And now he's down, down in humiliation. He's hanging on a cross. He's completely humiliated. Not only that, somehow the father allows and is pleased to heap the sin of the world upon him. And now he has sin upon him. And he who knew no sin, he's dealing with the sin of the world. And then he dies. God dies. The human part of God. Jesus dies. God can't die, but in his humanity, he died. And they put him in a tomb. And as we're going to remind ourselves later, it wasn't even his tomb. You talk about humiliated. You go from being the Godhead, part of the Godhead, and now you're dead in the ground. But we get to go to this side. Some people think his humiliation bottomed out when he preached in hell, but I think it's not biblical probably that he went to hell and preached. That's a theological controversy. What did God do? Where was Jesus from Friday to Sunday? But we know that Sunday came, hallelujah. And so in his humiliation, he's dead and in the tomb But then Sunday comes, and then the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and the angels are there, and he's resurrected, and 
He's exalted, and then 40 days later, he ascends back up into heaven, and what a day that must have been. I wonder what old Pax and Ariel were saying that day. He looks so different. In his glorified body, the angels wouldn't have, I guess unless they had ducked down and taken a peek, would not have seen that before. They would have noticed the scars on his hands. And he is now ascended into the presence of his heavenly father and reseated at the right hand of the father. And his glory is restored and, and his exaltation is moved. But it's not complete. It goes even further because one day the one who came and gestated in a womb will come on a great white horse with a, his name written on his thigh and out of his mouth his word will be like a sword and he'll slay the pagan armies of the world and then this world will be reshaped and then there will be a heavenly city and the streets are paved with gold and he will be the light of that city and it'll be connected here. Some people think it'll hover over this world that's reshaped, the new heavens and the new earth or that it will be actually positioned here. There will be passage from the new city, the new Jerusalem to this new world and we will be here and we will know where he is and we will see him and he will rule and reign forever and ever ever and ever, and he is exalted. Everything will be put under his feet and under his footstool. And that's the exaltation. And so all of the ministry of our Lord is defined in his humiliation and completed in his exaltation. And so we begin this morning with a manger so that we understand the humiliation. Let's go now to Paul's message in Philippians chapter 2. Um, it, it is um, an interesting message. It is a very practical message for us this Christmas. I heard uh, on the radio, I didn't write it down, but I heard one statistic on the radio that, and I didn't catch whether there was a mileage limit to it, but they said families who will be traveling any significant distance this Christmas will on the average have 12 disagreements or fights as they travel. And Paul's message to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 is a message to the church on the priority of unity. So we're just looking at the message right now, and this message has three parts to it. It is a call for oneness, it is a call for lowliness, and it is a call for helpfulness. We'll break those down here in just a minute. Let's remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Philippians, was in prison. And he thought he was going to be executed, and so he's writing a letter to the Philippian church. He loved these believers. In fact, flip, flip the page, and we can kind of catch up pretty quickly um, in just a moment, but uh, at four verses one and two. But before that, remember in Philippians chapter one, this is where the apostle Paul wrote. He's in prison, and this is where he wrote, um, because he thinks he's going to die, he says to the, believe, to the Philippian believers there, he says, um, for me to live would be Christ, but to die is gain. Don't you think that was comforting for them to get that from him? They were fearful for his life. They hated to hear, it grieved them to hear of their apostle Paul, their beloved apostle Paul in prison. I mean, just think um, if one of our beloved leaders here were in prison and, uh, and we got a letter from them and we were praying for them, and they said, listen, for me to live would be all for Christ, but for me to die, church, it's just going to be gain. Don't you think that would quiet our hearts? 
And so he's quieting the Philippian believers' hearts. That's where he says in Philippians 1, I often use this at funerals for believers, but he, he talks about how he longs to get out of prison and come back to them and minister and be with them and, and share his spiritual gifts with them and to teach them. They must have had precious times together as he taught them the word of God. You know that the word is... He's writing part of that right then. So when he was with them before, they must have studied the Pentateuch and the Psalms and the historical books and the prophets, and he would have shown them all about Jesus. No doubt they studied Isaiah 53 and on, and they would have seen Christ in all of this, and he would have taught them, and they had precious times together. And he says, I long to come back and to continue teaching you, but he said, but if I die and go to heaven, that will be better by far. As good as it would be to be back with you, it'll be even better to get to heaven. And so here he is in chains, his living on the razor's edge of not knowing his execution or coming to the door at any time and how many more breaths he has left in his life. He might be able to count them pretty soon. A few there are. And what he's writing to them about is how much he loves them, how much they bring joy to him, and for them to get along. Get along. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my, bro- my brothers, whom I love and long for, you can, you can sense how much he loves them, can't you hear? Therefore, my brethren, my brothers, my sisters would be included in that, the brethren. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love. And I long for, if I could be anywhere, I would be with you. You are my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He doesn't know if he's going to get to see them again. He wants them to live for the Lord no matter what. And then he says, it's kind of funny. And I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And those Poor ladies have their names chiseled in stone for all of eternity because it's a living and active word that will never go away. And I take it there's a presence of this Bible in all of eternity and good old Eodia and Syntyche. And almost none of us ever name our babies after these two ladies. (laughs) Evidently, a couple ladies in the church that just didn't like each other. They just weren't getting along to the degree that the schism in the church or the potential for schism, the potential for a lack of unity in the church must have been significant enough that he spends chapter 2, significant press time in chapter 2, calling on them to live together in unity. Let's read it. This is the message that Paul gives. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. If there's anything you can do to come together and to bring comfort to me, you will complete my joy. Joy is the theme of the book of Philippians. You would complete my joy if you would just be of one mind, united in mind, having the same love, being in full accord, 
all in agreement and, uh, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. There's the message there, as I said the other day, is a whole year of marriage counseling in three verses. There is a whole, a whole book on how to get along in three verses. And the first thing he calls for in verse 2 is a call for oneness. Now, let me tell you that um, when you get my notes, I, um, try to be, I try to be very careful that what's on my notes is either straight from the Bible or straight from me. And if I put something on my notes that's not from me, I either tell you or I write it in the notes. And this little, this little outline that popped off the page from William Hendrickson's commentary that it was a call for oneness in verse 2, it was a call for lowliness in verse 3, and it was a call for helpfulness in verse 4 is William Hendrickson's work. But I thought it was good, and I thought it would help us capture the essence of Paul's message. This call for oneness, verse 2, look at it, of having the same mind. I think that it is, it is repetitious and driving it home and saying it in a, in a, in a very similar uh, synonymous way, uh, same mind, one mind, he ends the sentence. Be of the same mind, be of one mind, having the same love, being in full accord. This is a union. This is being like-minded and like-hearted and getting along. Secondly, in verse 3, he says, there, there is though, a demand and a call for lowliness. Look what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is hard for us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That takes lowliness of spirit, doesn't it? That takes a surrender of self and personal agendas to esteem another person and to watch out and to make them more significant than I am. That's what Paul's saying. This is what you need, church. You need to be of one mind, and you need to be of of a lowly heart. Thirdly, in verse 4, he says, and be helpful to one another, a call for helpfulness. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Isn't that a powerful statement? Just think how transformative it would be if we would just live out those three verses. If we would experience a oneness and a lowliness and a helpfulness in our relationships. You know, I often use this passage in my office when I'm doing marriage counseling. And I reach in my drawer and take out a piece of scrap paper and I lay it there and I draw a stick figure of a man. A head and body and his legs and his arms. And then on the bottom side of the cross, the page on the bottom, I draw a stick figure of a woman. And I do that by stereotyping her with a little curly hair and a little, a little dress on her. So I have the man and the woman right there, okay? And we really do think they're different here at Fellowship Bible Church. And, and we'll preach another message on that another day. And so there on the bottom of the page, my stick figure man and my stick figure woman And then I draw a triangle at the top of the page. The triangle represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I draw a line from the man up to the Lord and to the the Trinity, and I draw a line up from the woman. And then I take and I draw some lines from the center of the widest part of these 
lines. You can picture this, can't you? And I draw, and I draw opposite arrows, and you see our focus is on one another. And look how far apart we are. We are so, we are so down on that other person. I do not esteem them higher than myself. In fact, in fact, if they weren't so dumb, I could probably get along with them better. But you just, no matter, you can't make up how awful that person is. If they would just, in what you're saying, really, whether you think it or not, is they're just not as smart and bright and as effective as I am. And if they would just do things my way instead of doing things, well, here we are, focused on each other. We're in trouble. Relationships are damaged. And we are far, far apart from one another, aren't we? And so the task is what? The task is to get our eyes off of one another. And I don't mean to minimize in any way, shape, or form that it is a very real thing that we can offend one another deeply and inappropriately in our marriages or in other relationships. And that it doesn't matter. But we have to get our eyes off of that other person, don't we? And we have to get our eyes up here on the Lord. And then I start drawing and, and adding some lines. And I say, look what happens when I stop focusing on you and I start focusing on the Lord. And I begin to grow in Christ and we're working our way up. And then I draw a line across up here. Look how much closer together we are up here than we were down here. Uh, now you have to have the right motives. You don't, you don't, especially men, want to do this. They want to become all spiritual so that their wife will, will come back to them. No, I want to walk with God and I want to follow Christ and I want to be a humble servant of Christ because it's the right thing to do and because I'm going to stand before him someday and I'm going to answer to him one day. And in a way, in a way, it doesn't really matter what that person thinks. It only matters what God thinks. And as I focus on what God thinks and I'm growing in Christ, and if the other person in my relationship problem is growing in Christ, what's happening ultimately, we unite in Christ and we're all together. That's what Paul's saying here. You need oneness of mind, you need lowliness of spirit, and you need helpfulness. And so this is how this looks like. Um, the other person's agenda then, and so the key to unity is humility. The other person's agenda is my priority. I say, oh, hey, hey, um, honey, you go and play softball tonight with the guys at church. Oh, babe, I wouldn't think of it. Tonight's Aldi's night. I'm going to push the cart for you. We're going grocery shopping tonight. Isn't tonight your grocery night? And then when we get home, I'm going to help you fold some clothes. No, no, no. Here, you get some money out of, get my, get my little change person. You buy a hamburger after the ball game and a Mountain Dew, and you stay after and talk to the guys even a little bit. You go play ball because you need to. You've been working hard. No, babe, I can't do that. It's, we're going to all these, and then you need, we're going to work together. I'm going to push the car. And so now our fights, our arguments are trying to defer to the other person's agenda. It just never seems to really work that way, does it? <laughs> but just think what our relationships would be like if I truly had lowliness of spirit and helpfulness of mind that I would, in verse 4, let each of you look not only on his own interests but also to the interest of others. You see, it, it doesn't really say that my agenda doesn't matter, but it just says I have to watch out for the other person's agenda. And then as my agenda is surrendered to Christ, now we have something. All right, there's Paul's message. You say, Pastor Van, this is Christmas week morning and not marriage counseling seminar. Oh, we're getting there. We're going right to the incarnation. 
You see, the Apostle Paul evidently thought that this matter was so important that he now begins six verses that, trust me, six verses that are going to plunge into deep theology to the degree that there's been countless books written about the next six verses. You could not contain in this room the drums of oil to create the print of, of, of ink. And our forest doesn't provide enough trees to provide the paper for all of the writing that's gone on now and the surmising and the study of what now Paul is saying. And what he's doing is he's using the humiliation of Christ as an illustration for us to emulate in our relationships in the church. Look what he says. Let's just pick up verse 4 again, finishing our little outline. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Here's Christmas. Here's the incarnation. But he, verse 7, verse 7 is the Christmas verse. Most well summed up, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Here is the humiliation of Christ being held up by the Apostle Paul as a model for our emulation in our Christian walk in the priority of unity in relationships. It would help us to understand a little bit of the language. Let me make clear here because it's a little bit technical and it's a little bit difficult and I don't want to get too far into it and in fact I'm not even capable of getting too far into it. But where he says, part of the debate here is, okay, what is it when Jesus says that he emptied himself, and we're going to talk about that, how empty did he empty himself? But before we even get there, what's not in your notes, let, let me just explain a couple of the words that are used that the Apostle Paul uses. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, You are to emulate the mind of Christ. We get that. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God... Okay, what does that word form of God mean? Was he God or was he not God? Was he just in the form of God? So that comes from a Greek word that is the word morph or morphe. Okay? It is a, it is a word that, that means inner essence. It is essential. It's an abiding, the abiding nature of a person or thing that never changes. So when we say that Jesus was in the form of God... He is of the essence of God. He was equal with God. He said himself he was equal with God and that he was God. And he is of the same nature. He, when, so when he's of that form, morphe, he is of the substance of God. And he's part of the Trinity. Then he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We'll talk about that in a minute. But emptied himself by taking the form, same word, of a servant, being born, here it is, in the likeness of men. A similar word, but a different word. This is the word schema in Greek, likeness. And this is the idea of, your Bible might say, being found in fashion as a man. It's a similar concept to the form 
But instead of the inner substance of what you always are and it's unchangeable, this schema word translated in the ESV um, found in the likeness of a man, the idea there is that it refers to externals, to uh, uh, the accidental or incidental fleeting, the fleeting bearing or appearance It changes from time to time. Here's another illustration from William Hendrickson that I thought was helpful. And he he was talking about being a male, M-A-L-E, a man, okay? So Jesus, or not so much Jesus here, but the idea is in form, Jesus was in the form of God, of the essence a man is in the form of a man, that would mean... um, um, uh, morphe, that would mean he's of the substance and constant of a man, but in, the, in his likeness, he was a little boy, then he was a teenager, then he was in a grown adult man, then he was an old man with a gray beard. So his likeness shifted, but his form was always the same. He was always male. So, so do not doubt the fact that God was, that Jesus was all God. But But he took on the likeness of a man by not changing his inner substance, but by the outward change and shift. So I thought that would be a little bit helpful for us. But notice what he says in verse 6 then. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, which is what he had, a thing to be grasped. The idea of grass, and this is, your, is in your notes, is that it's, a, it's something that must not slip from his grasp. So he did not count his equality with God something that he couldn't let slip from his grasp. Okay? Furthermore, it says in verse 7 then that he emptied himself, and this is, this is um, part of the controversy of this passage now. How much did he empty himself? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Some people would say that, that he emptied himself of his three omni-attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. But I think that you can argue that that's not the case based on the testimony of what we see even in his earthly ministry. He had to have an omnipotence and an omniscience. He knew things and he did things that no man could do or that someone who wasn't all-powerful couldn't do. And so the idea here is that he emptied himself. If you're using your NIV, your NIV might say, because they tried to translate it in a way that would make it helpful, that he, he diminished his function, but he stayed God. And it says there that he made himself nothing. But literally it means he emptied himself. And so we ask ourselves, of what did he empty himself? I think the idea of emptying here is that not that he stopped being God, but rather that he waved, W-A-I-V-E-D, he waved or set aside certain rights that he would have had as God. And so the question remains, okay, when he emptied himself as part of his humiliation, what was it that he emptied himself of? And we have to study our Bible because Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say here what he emptied himself of. So let's just take a minute and let's reflect on a few verses and let's go to John 17. When you turn to John 17, stay in John, even though I'm going to duck over to another verse or two because it's easiest for us to just knock out these verses and we're going to have several in John 
And in John 17, notice what it says. John 17, verses 4 and 5. Notice what he says. Jesus is praying here. This is his high high priestly prayer. It's not long from this time that Jesus will go back to heaven and conclude his earthly season of ministry here. But the first thing we see when we say that Jesus emptied himself or he waived the usage of some of his glory and godness, the first thing let's think about, letter A, is that he gave up his heavenly glory for common humanity. We've already kind of emphasized that. He gave up the glory of heaven for the commonness of human life. And Jesus says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, 17, John. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth. So by humiliating himself, he brought glory to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I did what you said, what you sent me to do. And now, notice the words here, verse 5, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Can you see that he waved some of his glory? Now, he let it show on the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't he? And he kind of glowed, and the disciples said, hey, man, let's just build tents. Let's tabernacle right here. Let's just keep this to us, and let's just revel in the glory. But what is Jesus saying here? He's praying to his father and he says, I've completed your work. I've brought glory to you. Now, father, restore the glory that I set aside. Restore the glory of which I emptied myself that I had before the foundation of the world that when I stood up from the throne and I came and my humiliation, I left that glory behind. This is the courses of heaven. This is the gold of the street. This is the many-eyed creatures. This is the exaltation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says, look, I'm ready for you to restore that. In his humiliation, he left some of that glory for a temporary time. Secondly, he left indescribable wealth. You don't have to turn to this, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, there's a very interesting verse. You'll recognize it when I read it, but he left the indescribable wealth of heaven for complete poverty. He left the wealth of heaven, which is indescribable, for complete poverty. Look what 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And by the way, there are more verses to support all of these concepts, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I just thought this much would be helpful for us today. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Look what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. That was when he was still established as part of the Trinity in heaven, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, Corinthian believers, dirtbags, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
Praise God for that verse. Praise God for the humiliation of Jesus Christ, that he was willing to leave the gold-paved streets under his feet and take on poverty. And I thought William Hendrickson captured this so well that I had to quote him. Look what he says. He said, so poor was he that he was constantly borrowing. (laughs) He didn't own anything. A place for his birth. He borrowed a house to sleep in. He borrowed a boat to preach from. He borrowed an animal to ride on. He borrowed a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper. And finally, at the bottom of his humiliation, they put him down in the ground in a borrowed tomb. The old boy didn't even have his own tomb. It's almost sacrilegious to call Jesus the old boy, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus did not even have his own tomb. He had nothing. He had a seamless robe that they gambled for at the foot of the cross. But for our sakes, he who is rich became poor. Thirdly, his divine position he gave up to submit to authority. You're in John still, aren't you? Turn to John 5 now. John 5 and verse 30, and look what it says here. John's gospel, chapter 5 and verse 30. And this is pretty clear. Notice what he says here. He says, I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so now we have to talk for just a minute on one of those edgy topics that's hard for us to grasp, and that would be the wonder of the Trinity of God. So let's go to eternity past. Let's go before creation. Would you agree with me that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the form of the first, second, and third members of the Godhead, okay, our Lord had not taken on his role of a son or a lamb slain, but he was the second member of the Godhead. Would you say it's probably correct, class, on your little quiz here, that the Trinity got along in perfect unity? Yes or no? Yes. They never disagreed. They never thought a thought. Could God think a new thought? They never thought a thought that the other person didn't think or didn't know. Nobody brought new information to the table. You see, it's outside of the realm of our understanding. We only have snipshots and glances of it. But the Trinity dwelt together in perfect unity, and the Godhead was in perfection. And how about this question on the quiz, class? Um, One member of the Godhead, let's say the Holy Spirit, is inferior to the other members of the Godhead. True or false? False. So we rank them, and there is, uh, um, and Christ in his humiliation surrendered to the Father. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. But So we have perfect equality. We have perfect unity. We have glorious unity in the Trinity. We have no schism. We have no division. And Jesus says in his humiliation, he decided to come underneath the authority of the Father. You see that? That's what he says, isn't it? And he did it for his earthly ministry to the degree that in the, on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, 26, in there, 26, what is Ma- uh, they, he talks about the temple in three days being torn down. He talks about vultures in the sky. He talks about the abomination of desolation. And somebody says, hey, 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 when is this going to happen? And the king, when the Lord will return in all his glory. When is this going to happen? And Jesus said, no one knows the hour or the day. 
not even the Son. And so I take it that in his humanity, he limited himself under that authority. I think that in his exaltation and reassertion at, in the presence and function in his glorified form, reconnecting with the Trinity that he does know the time of his return now. But it was in his earthly ministry. He limited, he emptied himself of some of this. Fourthly, he emptied himself of his prestige to model humility. You don't have to turn there. Just remember with me John 13. What did Jesus do in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed? He took the towel from around his own waist and some crusty old fishermen who grew up barefooted and in sandals and salt water and gnarly old long toenails and crummy feet. And there our Lord, the one who was on the throne, the one who was in the presence of the multi-eyed beings, the one who the multi-winged creatures never stopped singing to for all of eternity past, he takes off his towel and he bends down and he washes Peter's feet. Hmm. And, and he did it to be a model of humility for us. Fifthly, this is probably the most important one. He emptied himself of his holy... I struggled to word this. He emptied himself of his holiness. Okay, so Jesus was always perfect. He never sinned. He was always holy. But let me continue. He, he emptied himself or waved the full exposure of his holiness for a sinner's identity, for a sinner's identity. This is a verse we, we use very often from the pulpit here. I quote it often. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The verse that you know very well is Isaiah 53, 6, but here's what I mean. So in eternity past and in the glory of heaven and in the presence of the angelic choirs, is there any sin in the presence of God? No. Is there any exposure to anything outside the will of God? No. And in all of his holiness, he waved enough of it to come to earth that he would expose himself to sin and to sinful people and to sinful occurrences, even to the degree, ultimately, that Isaiah 53, 6, that the Father would lay on him the iniquity of us all. The sin was not on him up there. In all of his exaltation, it was only in his humiliation that sin comes upon him. And he is our representative, the second Adam then. All of the sin, our sin is imputed. It's transferred over to him. We talked about this a lot lately. And there he is. And he, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... He made him, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In reconciling man to himself, Jesus took responsibility for our sin. Remember I tried to clarify last week what I've spoken of before, maybe clouded. God knew that Jesus never sinned. God can't sin. And God the Father knew that Jesus never did those rapes and those murders and those adulteries and those lies. 
but it was transferred over and credited to him as though he did it in the same way that God knows that we have not kept the law, but when we go to the cross and we lay down our sin and we shower in the blood of Christ and we become blood-bought children of God and our sin is forgiven and cast away as far as the east is from the west, then God imputes or transfers the righteousness of Christ to us so that when we stand before him, God knows that we're not the one who kept the law, but when he looks at our record, it's credited to our account that we kept the law. Praise God. You see? But he had to expose himself in all of his holiness. He had to empty himself of some of that so that he could be with sinners and be in sin and identify with sin. Hmm. Wouldn't you say, well, the, let's read the rest of the passage. It's, it's, it's so readable. Philippians chapter 2, because what we see now to conclude our message is we're not going to focus on 8 through 11, but let's read them again and let's know that his humiliation, as I've been emphasizing, ends in his exaltation. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There's the humiliation, even death on a cross. There's even more humiliation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Here's the exaltation. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you think that if you're embracing this, that tonight and Tuesday, and Tuesday night, when the choir is singing and the orchestra is playing and we're singing about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we just worship, worship, worship. It's the name above all names. It's the name before every knee that every knee will bow. And in his humiliation, he was born in a manger. And then in further humiliation, he went to the cross. But then in his glorification and in his exaltation, he is our great king. Don't you think out of this message, you cannot ponder these things and be exposed to them, can you, without number one, Christ's model of humility magnifying our own selfishness and pride. Don't you feel that way? What a wonderful Lord Jesus we have. And the whole point of the passage is, you didn't miss it, did you? That as the Apostle Paul gives the message on unity and the priority of unity in the church, his whole theological handling of the incarnation and the humiliation of Christ in this passage is that it's our example. We're supposed to emulate this emptying out of our pride and our arrogance and our selfishness and not hold on to our agendas as something that needs to be grasped and not let go of. Don't you see that in this humiliation and exaltation of Christ that the way up is down? that the way up is down, right? Isn't that a principle of the Christian life? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. James says that he brings down the proud and the arrogant, but he lifts up the humble. You see, if you want to go up in the Christian life, you have to go down. Thirdly, don't you think that unity in the church is a spiritual and practical priority. If the Apostle Paul spent this much time on it in this much depth, that was just an illustration that he gave. The point of the message was 
For Eutychus, now nah, that's the guy who fell out the window. What was her name? Iodia, Iodia and Syntyche to get along. That was the point of the message. The illustration was the humiliation of our wonderful Lord Jesus. You ever think what it would be like? Not just in our marriages and between parents and teenage children and adult children, but among the congregation that if we esteemed others higher than ourselves and we had, and we had a oneness of spirit and we had lowliness of heart and we had helpfulness in our hands that we would bump our heads bundling over trying to wash one another's feet. What it would say to a, wash, a watching but dying world, they would come in here and they would think, you people are really different, but I really like you. That if, that if we would empty ourselves of ourselves and be filled with the Lord Jesus, and ultimately, humility only comes, doesn't it, when we die to self, and we only die to self when we surrender to Christ. And that's done at the foot of the cross, isn't it? When we shower in the blood of Christ and he makes us a new creation in Christ. So this Christmas, after thinking these things through and unwrapping these truths of Christmas, maybe the hymns mean a little bit more. Maybe the words to the hymns, not grandma got ran over by a reindeer kind of hymns, but hymns that exalt the Lord Jesus in his humiliation and in his manger that his virgin birth is so significant because he's God in the flesh and his humanity is so important because he could only accomplish for us and qualify to accomplish for us certain things because he took a body and in his humiliation he provides for us a model that only through the resurrection power of Christ in us when we've been to the cross can we begin to emulate that kind of emptiness from pride and self-reliance and arrogance. So may God give us the greatest Christmas yet as we wonder and marvel at the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it transforms us. Let's stand and close in prayer, please. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you and to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas time. We'll, many of us will be distracted and busy like Martha preparing food and it's important but Father help us to find time to find that quiet place help us even as we experience worship services and candlelight services and Christmas carols and hymns to just be so enriched and to be in in awe of our Lord Jesus and his humiliation and then the wonder of his exaltation and our great salvation in Christ. Please continue to work in our hearts this Christmas, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.